Perfect. Welcome to the podcast, Martin Coopland. Yeah, thank you. How you doing? You okay? Yeah, good. Thank you. Um, different role since we last spoke. Yes. Um, noticed. Tell us more. Now. So I moved on to a company called Seven. I'm still in the uh, MSP space, mm-hmm. uh, managed service provider space. I'm, but they're based up in Scotland. Um, but we we do work all over the. Uh, country and and all, basically wherever <laughs> wherever there is cloud work to be done. Um, so my role there is uh, an application architect. Uh, again, still in the Azure space. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess fundamentally for me, uh, that that is really about trying to drive forward the practice there of app modernization in in the cloud um, and building what we call cloud native applications using cloud first technology. Um, are, you, uh, are you building products for your for your own company or are you essentially consulting? Uh, both. And, okay. Both. Yeah, so both internally and for customers as well. Yeah. Um, but with that, uh, under that banner is app innovation. Um, so we, we talk a lot and do a lot about what we talked about last time. DevOps is still a huge topic of discussion for folks, as is low-code and no-code platforms, power platform. Yes, good conversation um, to get into. And basically building enterprise APIs, giving the customer's business the ability to then use um, power platform to build their own solutions effectively and the benefits of that. So there's some, some good things happening there as well. And then uh, probably the buzzword that uh, everyone likes to use at the minute, AI also comes under the banner of uh, app innovation as far as Microsoft are concerned and um, yeah Microsoft now have a plethora of AI services available They're obviously enriching their own products with AI as well extensively mm. um, so yeah that's that's where we are good today. stuff well the rest of the world is talking about AI aren't they so we, we should as well yep. so um, and I'm always interested in I guess the use cases of AI because we talk about it as a technology and we get chat GPT to write poems for us yep. and stuff like that but but really, it, we need to understand what the valuable applications are, are of AI. So what have you seen in your job? What, how are you using it? Yeah, I, I think as well, I'd probably just prefix that with there's a lot of buzz around AI and uh, generative AI, which is where ChatGPT would sit under, we call them large language models, LLL, LMMs. LLMs. Yeah. And... Um, I guess organizations are looking to utilize that technology to build their own interactive bots. So with Azure OpenAI, you can bring your own data, you can train it securely on your own data mm-hmm. and then interact with it just like you would ChatGPT. Um, I did a blog post about it the other week actually, it's some new functionality that's out and once you're happy with the results you're getting, you can publish an interface directly from OpenAI to a, an Azure app service. and off you go, log in and off you go. Um, but the, it's quite good because you could obviously ask it who someone in your organization is. It's going to start and say, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, then you can upload a, a textual format of a, or a PDF even of an org chart of your organization and then say, who is Joe Bloggs? And it will say, Joe Bloggs is chief financial officer at so and so, so and so. So you can upload your own data, whatever that might be. Uh, and organizations are starting to do that for you know the support there's a big market for support bots and support as well and um, you know trying to improve that fix on first contact resolution for support desks i guess that's a big place as well 
Um, but more broadly around the technology is um, uh, things like imaging and um, recognizing what's in front of you using AI, mm. processing documents to speed up um, some of those processes. There's a lot of really good stuff in the NHS at the minute. Um, Adam Brooks, so there's a case study about this on Microsoft's website, uh, products that they've built in collaboration with Microsoft called Osiris. And it is basically there to speed up the detection of cancers through AI and imaging. Mm. And they can detect cancer up to a year before a physician would um, with some early results that they've shown. So they're doing more trials to see if they can replicate that success against different ethnic groups and different types of cancers but they've got some really early promising results about using that technology in, in healthcare for you know an absolutely that's, incredible reason that's phenomenal isn't it and and the speed that ai is evolving and or well, technology is evolving if we're now yeah. talking 12 months you know ahead of it maybe coming to what a, a physician or a doctor would mm -hmm. know god knows what it'll be in 24 months time when it's all evolved and you know and that's a great use of ai isn't it it, it yeah. is and you know there's lots of use cases and actually i was looking at this the other day in preparation and the earliest mention of artificial intelligence it was in a book i can't remember the name of the book but in 1957 <laughs> um, artificial intelligence was written down in a book and really AI is a banner for lots of different technologies. Automation could class as AI to a degree. Mm. You know, we're taking inputs, we're making decisions and generating a result based on those decisions, based on those inputs. Yeah. So, you know, there's lots of different areas that it can be, but, you know, if you use just eight, if you use Deliveroo, AI is figuring out who is the best driver to pick up your order based on where they are, how quickly your order will be ready, mm. um, what they're driving as well, which I was interested to find out. So if, if, like, if you're further away, they'll try not to send someone on a push bike. Mm. Someone on a motorbike's better place to deliver that for you so it gets there hotter. Um, same with Uber. Uber do the pricing quite controversially and I guess famously based on how busy the area is. Mm. Um, so if you ever go to an airport, for instance, the chances of you getting a, a cheap Uber are pr pretty much non-existent because yeah. they inflate the pricing based on demand. Netflix. That's, that's just supply and demand, isn't it? That the market, it is. all markets have been doing that since forever. It is. And it's AI that's making those decisions. You know, there's no human sat at the end in yeah. Uber HQ saying it's really busy here at the minute. Let's make them make more expensive. It's based mm. on the amount of users opening the app in a certain area where they want to go. There's lots of decisions going to making that. Uh, and Netflix is probably the one that we are all most used to. You know, you watch some vid uh, some videos about something, um, you are going to get recommendations for other things to watch that are similar. Yeah. Same on YouTube, right? Or TikTok. You watch videos of cats, mm. you will be recommended videos of cats because that's what they feel you like to watch. Mm. And it's AI and machine learning and uh, data that is making all of that possible. It's been around for a long time. I was going to say, when, an evolution. when does data and analytics algorithms become AI? Because Amazon's ad, you bought this, you should buy this. Consider this, yeah. For yep. a long, long, long time. Yeah, I, I would say that the line is now very blurry between what you would say is analytics and AI. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's some of the 
tech industry and its buzzwords. We're really good at using buzzwords. Mm. We're really bad at wanting to use all the latest new technology sometimes. I think this is probably part of it a little bit. But I think when you then take into it's not just a straightforward case of you've bought these toilet rolls before. Do you want to buy more toilet rolls? It is you've probably used those toilet rolls now, so I'll tell you about buying them now. Mm. You know, Amazon do that. Like I, I get batteries from Amazon because we're two kids who go for absolute hundreds mm, of yeah, things. Of course. But pretty accurately, within a few weeks, it will say to me, hey, on the uh, show and sat up in the kitchen, it'll say, hey, um, X months ago, you ordered AAA batteries. We think you might need some more. Yeah. Sure enough, go look in the cupboard. Well, actually, yeah, we do need some more. That's, so, that's you know, yeah, they're, yeah. they're pretty good. And, and that's where the AI side of it comes in, using different data sources to enrich a primary data source. Mm. You know, it's no longer just using purchasing data to say, you know, go buy this again, or other people that bought this have bought this. Mm. It's that plus, actually, you probably are about to need more of this product. So would you like us to just order it for you? Mm. Uh, and, and of course, with an Alexa device and any virtual assistant, really, again, another example of AI um, at work, that that is possible easy something we take for granted and something that's now completely rooted in society mm. i'm gonna um just pull you back to what you said at the beginning around businesses almost creating their own version of chat mm -hmm. gpt so help me understand that a little bit more so what what quantity of data i guess do you need to be able to get going on that we it's, it's by definition a large language yeah. model so. so so i guess in in all honesty you can start with one document right and if if, if you phrase the question correctly and i guess that's where chat gpt and generative ai has its downfalls is just like a human you know if we don't have context we mess up a conversation yeah. and relay the wrong answer yeah as does chat gpt if you don't give it the right context it could give you an invalid answer uh, again, just like a human, I get get the argument of, you know, don't trust what it's telling you, validate the sources. Mm. But you could say exactly the same about a conversation with a, a human. If mm. you don't know that person is an authoritative yeah. source on a subject, you, you know, we, we generally take things with a pinch of salt. Um, but the more data you give it, the better it is, I guess, is is the um, is the premise of that. And this is where insurance companies and in, in finance in particular start to generate their own models to make better decisions on their businesses. Insurance especially is, is using AI a lot now to figure out how much your car insurance should be. So it's no, it's no longer just a black and white case of are you boy racer or not, mm. and this is, or are you female and this is what the price should be. It is how far are you driving, how often are you driving, are you driving for business? How many children do you have? Where um, you're based. Where you're based has a big factor in insurance as well. Mm. You know, there's, there's lots of different factors. And yes, they have a data source that gives them most of the answers to that. But um, I would be very surprised if they don't have other data sources around things like weather, mm. um, number of roadworks that are happening on the motorways. If you tell me you drive on the motorway and that year there's planned to be a lot of roadworks you can't drive as fast so maybe that makes your insurance cheaper mm. now, I, I don't know bet they don't pass work, those savings on probably not but um you know it just goes to illustrate the point that you can take 
you can take data points and you can enhance and enrich it with other data from other sources. Um, like for instance, when I was working at, at Berkeley Atlantic, uh, like the planes produce a huge amount of data um, and they used to use the routing information along with load factors of how, as a percentage, how full the plane was, where it was flying, what the weather was like to make more predictable maintenance schedules. And that meant that they could tell that if a, you know, if a plane was going to be at a remote airport, a remote station, as they're called, with no engineering facilities, they could arrange ahead of time to ship out the right parts and an engineer to go do it there rather than delay it or put another plane in to move stuff around. It's a lot more efficient than yeah. you know messing around with a schedule to have a, a plane at its home base to do the maintenance where you have a large amount of engineers. So there's, there's loads of different ways it can work. Banks use AI for fraud detection quite heavily. Um, and it's led to quite a reduction, I think. I, I won't want to quote the numbers without them in front of me, but I've read articles fairly recently to say that there's been quite a massive drop in the amount of wire fraud that's taken place between bank accounts because of the checks that now happen. Um, I mean, I don't bank, uh, I bank with HSBC, and every time I make a transfer, I have to put in the account details yeah. and then the name that I've been given. Mm. And if they don't match, it won't let me transfer it. Yeah. I have to override it. Mm. So it's still my responsibility to validate it, but it will tell me, hang on a minute, this isn't registered to your blogs, it's mm. registered it's to right. someone else. Is, is this correct? And there's, again, there's lots of different data sources in there. There's also things telling me, I've already made a transfer today. Are you sure you're not being conned? Mm. You know, there's lots of stuff happening to try and reduce that risk. I'm going to say something a bit weird because I bank with HSBC as well and to one extent I think it's brilliant like you say to to you know because there's all sorts of things that are going on in the background that you kind mm -hmm. of you know that can lead to money leaving your your account when you're not even aware. But where will it end part of me thinks you know it starts I know security's ultra important but it, sometimes it's like flip me this is really onerous now it's at some point, it will get to a point where we'll be like, flipping hell, can you just, can you Leave woe back? Alone. Yeah, and I think, I would say that's people's, I'd say that's the current discussion around risk of AI is, I think as humans, we can see the potential. And in some cases, we don't like that potential. So we're a little bit adverse to where this might go in, in the future. Um, I would say as well to kind of counter that from a risk perspective, from a software engineering perspective, there's lots of examples you can read about online where as, as engineers, if we're not comfortable with a risk something presents, we just don't write it, we just don't make it. Um, and we can understand that ahead of time. Mm. Uh, and there are examples of, of that happening um, before. And there are also examples of where we are today with AI, where w when the, um, when the jet engine was first created, people were worried about what it meant for other sectors of industry, yeah, what, what it meant for travel as a whole, was it safe? It, and if you think about it, those are the same things that we're asking when it comes to AI yeah. today. Um, so I think some of it is just human nature to think, hang on a minute, we need to check where we are. Um, I think some of it as well is the pace of development has scared people because mm. ChatGPT really come out of 
absolutely no way. <laughs> Left field. Because all of a sudden, it's like, go try this, it's free. It's mm. like, oh, well, it's amazing. Uh, yeah, oh, this is really good. Um, Great CV. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and, and we've all messed around with some of the stuff it can do and got some great content out of it i've had both great content questionable content just plain wrong content mm. uh, and it's the more you use these tools and the more you figure out with the help of people's guides that you can set the context of it so i could get actually pt to act as um president obama mm. and respond to questions like obama would i can get it to act as all kinds of different scenarios um and again, it's that context, I think, that's really important in those things. But yeah, I think I, one thing I would observe from it, though, is when people start to equate intelligence with dominance, which I think is what's happening, That that's the main downfall of the conversation about the risk of AI. You know, we're, we're the alpha species, and we're the ones that set the overall agenda so we're the ones that control its pace of development in in this context you know we're the ones that say you know when ai systems do become smarter than us and again i don't don't like that time because when i've created healthcare ai systems i'm not a doctor so is is that ai system smarter than me of course it is because mm. i don't know the first thing about medicine but with the help of clinicians, we've created the technology based on their data to answer those fundamental questions and improve patient outcomes for them. So, you know, I don't think saying when AI systems become smarter than humans, because I think that that's I don't think that's a great argument. You know, I just don't think it's a, it's the right way to go about it. I think what we should be asking is more around how do we put the right guardrails in place to make sure that something bad doesn't happen and i don't know what something bad is um you know when we talk about security in a bit there's some examples i can show you and think of but you know i think i think the general conversation around it is is just wrong even with a human species um, how, how how practical is it to police the guardrails i mean that we've debated this before it's kind yeah. of Yes, we can sit around here and we can agree some guardrails, but yep. you know, unless the globe, everybody in the world plays by that, then you're only one person to break the guardrails and you, we yeah. don't really know what we were letting ourselves in for. That's very true. And you know, it remains to be seen what those guardrails will be. Obviously the UK is hosting a summit later this year around um, the future of AI and, and what that should look like and, and we have a lot of companies in the UK um, either native to the UK or headquartered in the UK from um, foreign tech companies that will play a big part in deciding what that should look like but you know, I, I kind of agree with um, Sam Altman who's the CEO of OpenAI that produced ChatVT when he was in Congress he, he actually sat there and said we need regulation you know how many tech CEOs have gone mm. to Congress, or, yeah. um, or sat in front of a, a select committee in Parliament and said, "Please regulate us." Uh, and I think that's a, I think that's an admission from the industry really that we're on the cusp of an industrial revolution in tech, and we need human policing. How that works is a great question, um, and I don't know the answer to that. 
but it has to be the same sort of way we regulate data privacy. It has to be a, it can't be something that you ask companies to sign up for. It has to be, if you're writing these solutions, these are the rules you play by. Yeah, you abide by um, them. And I actually, and I actually think it needs to be higher than one government. If I'm honest, you know, I don't think it's okay having some rules in the UK, set by the UK government, some rules in the US, but actually, what if they're different? <laughs> and that, that's that's the challenge that I see. It's like financial regulation, you know, you, yeah. and, and it, taxation. You know, yeah. the UK can do something on taxation, but while you've got some something in the Caribbean that offers a, a loophole yeah. businesses will always go to that hi guys just jumping in I want to talk about one of the services we offer which is robotic process automation also known as RPA that is software that replicates human behavior so if you've got people downloading spreadsheets attaching them to emails going on portals downloading information moving data around all that stuff is perfect for a robot. So if that's interesting, get in touch. Let's have a chat. Let's see if we can help. Enough from me. Back to the conversation. Gibraltar for betting, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, the Cayman Islands, Gibraltar, Monaco, you know, all yeah. these tax havens exist because of loopholes in the rules. Uh, and I think that's where the, there have been calls recently that this needs to be higher than government and needs to be a UN program. Mm. Um, and policed and enforced by the UN. Again, how that works is, is another <laughs> question because again, you know, not not to digress to Ukraine too much, but we Russia's a permanent member of the UN. Mm. They can't be removed. Permanent veto. And they have a permanent veto because of that. They can anything that gets put against them, they will and have said whatever. Mm. We're on our own mandate. Mm. And I guess that's the danger with them controlling or um, enforcing any rules that we set out around AI. Um, so I think it's coming, but I don't know where it's going to come from. Um, and and I, I think self-policing like we've seen in tech is, is not going to cut it over time when it comes to AI. If it doesn't come, for all the reasons we've said, it's practically not going to work. You need a global initiative which there's no real body that can enforce that mm -hmm. where will we end up what are the risks so i, th I think that's where a, a, a lot of people will like me saying trust big tech because a lot of people don't have trust in big tech you know google for one doesn't have a great reputation when it comes to data privacy um neither does amazon really um, Apple's had its own um, challenges when it comes to payments over its network and the tax it pays in Ireland or doesn't pay in Ireland. Mm. Um, but I think when it comes to this, I, I would fall back to something I said earlier where as, as engineers, when it comes to the ethics, I, I think you'd struggle to find a lot of people that would build something that's not that ethical. I'm gonna I'm gonna challenge it in the nicest sense, Martin, by mm -hmm. saying in everything we all, there's, there's always outliers and there's always always there is, yeah. the, the the dark side. We've got the dark web versus you know the light web, whatever is <laughs> the internet. But but that's my technical uh, levels shown. But but I suppose it's when it gets into the wrong hands and when people start doing yeah. it. If I'm honest, I've 
like you said, ChatGBT entered into the into the world earlier in the year, and we were all like, "Wow, this is unbelievable!" Yeah. And, and and all the things you've highlighted about some of the things to question it and and go with it, etc. Spot on. I suppose my concern is around the, the nefarious use of AI and where that could send us, take us, yeah. you know, going forward. And, you know, utopia is everyone sort of, you know, has ethics and goes, yeah, do you know what, I'm not going to, but, you know, you've only got to see how people, you know, try and scam old days pensioners and exactly. all those sorts of uh, things. I mean, you know, hackers, both good and bad. Uh, let's not forget there are good hackers in the yeah. world that work for states. Um, and work for governments, work for organisations um, that are trying to stop black hats, as we call them, the, the bad hackers and bad actors from um, nefarious activity. Um, again, I think there's going to be something incumbent on those organisations to step up and try and fight that. Um, again, just kind of rolling back to when Russia invaded Ukraine and um, Microsoft security have, have this incredible presentation that's on YouTube about how they've helped Ukraine from a cyber security perspective and, and how they've identified and repelled different attacks and how they know who these people are based on digital footprints. They don't have to do that at the end of the day, yeah, um, but know. they are doing it and they're doing it for regular citizens day to day. I think if you look at the National Cyber Security Centre that protects the UK's critical infrastructure, um, they produce a report every year about the state of security. And last year, um, they were saying that critical national infrastructure like power stations, nuclear power plants included, mm. um, government infrastructure, government secrets, banking, they were repelling more than 10,000 attacks a day. But you only need one of them 10,000 attacks to, to, to come get through. through. Yeah. And suddenly... Uh, and I mean, this is where, you know, again, getting into cyber security a little bit, but this is where layered defences work because you can get through the first door and the second door, but not the third and the fourth and the fifth. And, and a lot of these very critical systems don't just have things like firewalls and mm. um, they rotate how you access those systems like your your ip addresses that you're obviously the, the key thing there from a networking perspective but they rotate ip addresses they rotate secrets on firewalls and um, the firewall vendors are all different so that if you get found a vulnerability in one firewall from one vendor you can't get through the next because it's a different vendor Wow. You know, the, the, it's, it's it's a different level of how I guess we would normally think about cyber security, mm. um, especially at home and small businesses. But a, again, we are now at the point where I think security software is that good when it comes to stuff like this that you, you will often find now and read about that it's a human that mm. started that attack. The weakness in the chain is us. Mm. We've opened an email from someone we believe that we trust and it happens to not be them. Mm. And all of a sudden the, the whole um, network's been taken down, like the NHS a couple of years ago, three years ago was it, had a, um, quite a big incident. A lot of um, GP surgeries had their data encrypted in a cyber attack and that started from one person 
in a segue somewhere opening mm. an email and clicking an attachment and because these systems are all connected it, it, it just exploded and because of poor practices it exploded so you know I think just like today governments software organizations and vendors and security organizations are trying to practice good security hygiene and basic security hygiene it's like they always said in the pandemic right the best way to combat it was good hygiene washing your hands covering your mouth mm. you know just stuff that quite frankly i was amazed people don't do regularly anyway <laughs> but you know same with cyber security keep everything up to date and patched complex passwords don't write passwords down and mm. um, good firewalls resiliency backup you know those sorts of things are all things that we can expand i guess in an ai world to also add layers of security uh, and i think you know this is probably the biggest talking point i think is where do, like you said where does that regulation come from how effective is it and how do we stop bad actors uh, i guess the truth is we don't today mm. you know with people using the banking system to launder money they're not stopped so they found out during the process we're always behind these people when it comes to activities like this and yeah, yeah. You know, i think we get ahead of them i think we figure out how to catch them it's a it's, a, it's an arms race i guess between yep. different nations between yep. good cops bad cops gangs and non-gangs and yep. you know innovation all the time on both sides and we yeah. just need to make sure that we try and stay ahead it, it is and you know it's probably a good like security security has a reputation of not being up to speed with a tech mm. and i think ai is an area where both professionals in government security agencies as well as large software organizations see the risk mm. and see the risk early on right there's there's a field called adversarial machine learning which is about poisoning the data that you see on the screen to trick AI and machine learning into thinking it's something else. Right. I, I I know as a podcast people will see it, but these these are stop signs with pieces of tape over. Mm-hmm. Pretty clear to us what what that means. Yeah. In a Tesla, it thinks they're speed limit signs. Interesting. Why? Because that's how the AI reads it. Interesting. So I wow. think the I think the middle one is a. Um, in fact I think they're all the same just at different angles but I'm sure this is a speed limit change to 50 mile an hour and that's how it sees it so as you're coming up to a stop junction your Tesla says "Mm, 50 mile an hour boom and off it goes and these were researchers in Israel that that did this and proved it Uh, and it's now been fixed Mm. Um, which again the industry is very good at giving people time to fix critical things like this finding a defect finding a defect and the the industry has an agreed time period where you can report a a security incident to a company and they have up to 90 days to fix that before you can publicly disclose it right and if they don't you can publicly disclose it can i can ask you about low code no code development because i think it's a really interesting area an area that we're involved in and for me i see I see a big future for that in terms yep, of fewer people writing code and more people configuring low code. So, yeah, what what sort of stuff are you doing? What's your experience around that? So, so I guess the first thing comes back to data a little bit is, uh, well, 
kind of rewind right to the beginning. So, uh, uh, Virgin Atlantic, we were an API data-driven company. Right? What, what does that mean? It means we give people within the business the interfaces to our corporate data in a controlled manner, both securely filtering the data so that they only get what they're allowed to have access to. But then, you know, if you think Joe Bloggs, who works in procurement, he knows the procurement world much better than I do. Mm. Yes, he could talk to a business analyst about, you know, how IT can help him and go fix this. You know, we could save time if we do this, 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 and this. But actually, if you give them a power platform license and they go write their own power app in a drag and drop canvas and connect to our enterprise APIs, they can fix that problem themselves and distribute their own application that's already got controlled access within our environment. You can't share them publicly. Um, it's already got access to the data it needs. We know that data is being properly filtered based on who's accessing it. Um, we know that they're allowed to access it, I guess is another key <laughs> thing as well. They're authenticated and authorized to do that. Um, but by giving, but by having an enterprise API business, all we're basically saying is, you know, we as an IT team are getting our data in order so that we layer APIs, application programming interfaces where you can send requests to data to update or read or create or delete data. Um, not always delete in most cases, um, to integrate that into your Power Platform canvas. And anyone can use Power Platform. As a developer, I really struggle with Power Platform because I want to do fancy mm. stuff with it, and you can't. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so I go straight back to opening Visual Studio and do it in there. But again, businesses should be open to that approach because it's a great way to solve business problems like who best to solve a business problem in procurement than someone in procurement mm. it's also quicker and often cheaper as well so that leaves us as it teams i guess to focus on the next big thing you know we we call it firefighting um in it don't we where we talk about the, the problems of today versus the future of tomorrow mm we can then focus on the future of tomorrow more if people are using our approved and updated methods of accessing corporate data rather than everyone having a copy of a spreadsheet mm. that spreadsheet is translated into a proper managed data store that is backed up controlled by it the access is is controlled in there in a secure way and your applications can then talk to it it helps that shadow IT scenario as well that we all know and love um, <laughs> to does a it, degree. Does it not enhance shadow IT? Does it not so take in, the in a way, off? In a way, obviously it does because people are you know, dealing with their own solutions, but they're building an interface and they're mm. connecting to data that we already know and understand. Mm. They're not building a PowerPoint, uh, sorry, they're not building an Excel with tons of macros the overnight becomes business critical mm. and then when Joe Bloggs goes on holiday and turns his PC off the whole business falls apart yeah. because that's where it is that's the scenario it stops because it's all stored centrally and the data's all stored centrally so yes there is, yes, it is shadow IT but it's controlled shadow IT you know, people create these spreadsheets and access databases because of the history of I've asked IT for this mm. and they've said it'll take four months 
yeah. or I've asked IT for this and they've said no, so they've just gone and done it themselves anyway. And but I, I get it, and I'm, obviously I'm, I'm on the same page as you. But there are, there are challenges with it in terms of yeah, we, you, build, sorry, you build a standalone application, it's brilliant. But then six months later, somebody builds a standalone application on top of that standalone application, uh, then a standalone application on top of that application. And suddenly you built a pyramid on quicksand. Yeah, and it all falls apart. So how, how do you govern it? How do you make sure that doesn't happen? So, so I think a center of excellence is the way you have to go about that, and. You know, it's it's a soft thing at the end of the day, but it involves people from the business, um, you know, nominated reps talking on a regular basis to people in IT about what they're doing, mm. and purely for the reason to keep everyone informed, so that someone can else can turn around and go, well, you don't need to do that because we built this thing. Doesn't mm. quite do what you want, but I could add these couple of things in yeah. just to folks in your department. So that only they see X, you can do that in, in Power Platform as well. You know, adding components that only certain groups or users can see. Um, and then it'll meet your needs. Uh, again, great. But again, it requires some discipline for mm. people to keep to that regime, right? And it requires discipline to keep meeting up, make sure that appropriate notes are taken and distributed, um, make sure that you set valid and, uh, and achievable targets for a centre of excellence. I guess where I've seen centre of excellence is done poorly before, it's where th there's you know, inadequate expectation on what they're trying to achieve. Mm. Um, or people turn it into a, a fiefdom of, this is my land and you're mm. not going to come and grab it. By um, sort of inadequate sort of targets or, uh, or acceptable yeah. Um. What, what? What? Expand that for me. So I think around like setting standards around how you use something. So you know, you you can introduce a new tool and say to people, "Here's a tool." Um. Some people will get it. Some people won't. Especially in IT, because we all like to mess around with stuff and figure out how to break it. Mm. Um. But if you set standards of how something works and what problems it solves. And, and these are the scenarios in which you should use this tool and these are scenarios if you use something else yes they're soft rules um but it helps people achieve the most from a, a specific tool it's practice ultimately. best practice is, is exactly what it is um and we see center of excellences in larger organizations as well that are adopting a cloud um, again, setting standards for migrating and tools to use in a cloud environment, how to get from where you are to where you want to be, um, how to manage your costs. You know, all of those things are all disciplines that are CCOE, as we call them, a cloud center of excellence or center of excellence would um, would look at, adopt and try, and try and shape. But the key thing is to get the right stakeholders into those kinds of things because the risk is that you end up with the same folks who have worked on every other project and set every other standard mm. being involved here as well and you don't really achieve anything what you need is a diverse range of folks involved from different parts of the business different levels of seniority to be able to come together and say this is how we use this technology you know we are using this technology to give you the best chance of success within your department and power platforms absolutely no different to, mm. to that it you know strip it right back it's a tool that accesses and presents data mm. and runs workflows do you think people use it 
push the boundaries of it. Yeah. You don't use it for the right purposes. I do, I do, and we, we, we saw that at Veglin as well, to be honest. So we, we had, I will say we had great success working in the way I've just described, where we give people access to flight data, cargo data, mm. operational data, and they went and they wrote their own apps and they come up with some absolutely amazing solutions. Mm. And absolutely, there were cases where what they developed was done much quicker than what we could do because we'd have had to capture and understand the requirements, mm. design a, an architect a solution, and then go write the code to do that thing. Whereas in most cases, they were developing stuff for their own team and it was fitting together well. And by going to the CCOE meetings, um, people could figure out what was already written and, and I guess understand the bigger picture, um, which is important because you're obviously representing your own team in that environment. So being able to see the bigger picture lets you see what other people are doing, improve your own skills, um, improve how you collaborate with other departments as well and how you share that data. And, and that starts to make it a, a lot less uh, of a lot more frictionless, I guess. Um, so that's that's a real key way to, to do it. And, and it was really successful, but what we had to understand in that CCOE was where's the tipping point, mm. right? Where is the point where this person's making this app so complicated that we actually need to look at it as IT and write it as a software engineered solution rather than using a drag and drop interface and that that differed you know we didn't we didn't set rules around it we had open discussions right? and that was the best way to do it because it's not a one-size-fits-all problem really what it is is a way to look at it and think well actually if we take what you guys are doing and add what these guys are doing actually we solve and unlock all of these possibilities and business problems and, and mm. that is adding real value rather than as just, you know, saying go off and make your own apps. Mm. You know, that's that's bound to fail and bound to cause problems and bound to end up in duplicated effort, especially in larger organisations. So sometimes in, in um, with bigger issues or bigger challenges within a department, the the power automate piece where, like you said, the, the SME um, is very much it, it, in the nicest sense the way i'm going to describe it is a sticking plaster to get them to a point yeah. where then they can bring in the, yep. the the it development team to go right we're getting by we've done this but actually we need it to be more robust and more yeah. and perhaps size you know sizable exactly and part of the agile practice's job was to do value stream mapping so basically map out a process all of its inputs how long each of those inputs took, where they come from. And that then let us better understand where teams could work better together, but also where the solution was becoming too big because it was relying on data from 15 different teams to go mm -hmm. forward. That is where you start to look at enterprise integration and building enterprise solutions when you have big problems that touch many people. Mm -hmm. Where Power Platform should be aimed at is those small, business solutions that help teams achieve stuff yeah. and get stuff done and save time themselves not fixing the problems of the business yeah it's finding the balance isn't it and that yeah. you give enough control to the business but at the same time you keep enough control that you don't start 
breaking things and causing <laughs> yeah. chaos. Because that's that's the last thing, you, and, and that can obviously have an adverse effect on business overall, mm. uh, or eventually that can have an adverse effect um, where we're manipulating data here that another team needs, and they end up not getting the information they want. So these folks have no knowledge that they've made this team's yeah. job five times harder by making their job easier. And that's where a center of excellence has to work well or has to be implemented so that it can recognize those things and see where those opportunities are to make it better in a, in a collaborative way rather than, you know, I, I don't really care what you, happens to you guys. This is about my team. Mm. It's like what it is. But, you know, if you do that, it's a bad thing over here and if it's a bad thing there it makes this thing mm. worse as well so so that's why that's why those things exist that's why center of excellences exist or should exist in organizations that are looking to push known low-code solutions because at the end of the day most of the time they, they're not technical people that are writing these solutions they understand their part of the business very well much better than we do as IT in 99% of the time. Mm. But again, just that conversation about guardrails and best practices, we're, we're adding those in to make sure that we still achieve the goals mm. of the business. Yeah. Last question. So yeah. the podcast is called Tomorrow's Workplace Today. And I've asked you this before, but I'll ask you it again, I think. So um, cash your mind for 10 years. What, what are you seeing? What does the workplace of 10 years time look like? So if I remember rightly, we were just coming out of the pandemic properly mm. last time we spoke and I, I think I might have said I don't see people returning to the office mm, you did. Um, yeah. so so that was completely uh, nonsense <laughs> advice because um, not so much in the UK but certainly overseas and I think you'll see it on if you look on news um, like Google are sending people back to the office Apple are, yeah. you know a lot of big companies are saying hey get yourselves back into these very expensive offices um, whether that will still be the case in Europe and the UK, I don't know. But I still, we still have quite a remote first culture, I think, as part of that. So it still still stands here to a degree. Um, but where will we be in ten years? You know, I think AI is obviously going to be a big driver in the future, whether we like it or not. Um, and the, the whole notion of AI is going to take my job, I, I kind of get to a degree, but it's not a case of whether AI will take your job or not. It's whether you will let AI take your job, I, mm. I think. And let's think about the jobs that AI will create. You know, there'll be a whole, like how many jobs existed 10, 15 years ago without some of the technology we have today, you know, if you replay it backwards like that. so. You know, will the office disappear? I don't think so. Will the way we work change fundamentally? In some areas, yes, it will. You know, but again, you know, I think where you look at document writing, the legal sector, uh, there's already been some things I think I've seen around using generative AI to write contracts. Mm -hmm. um, someone I think in the estates prepared a legal case using ChatGPT didn't review it and went to court with it and uh, the judge basically slapped him around the face and said this is ridiculous get out <laughs> um so you know i think there's always going to be a need to check and balance what these things produce uh, and, I, and i hope that stays the way 
because we're the last line of defense as i see it for a lot of these things mm. but i think we're going to have a lot more reliance on tools like that to help our day-to-day work mm. I, I today i use if i'm coding i i use pair programming i i use github copilot mm. to generate code for me do i check what it produces absolutely and um, do i still get someone else to review it absolutely but does it save me time a lot of time mm. um I, I can i can write the same amount of code as i would in a day in, in probably half of that time um, and i'm spending the other time that i've saved making sure that we're addressing what the customers raised you know this is all about you know speeding up the development time so i want to make sure that i'm addressing their requirements properly um so yes i've generated and written and validated and add some bits remove some bits um because it's not always 100 accurate in fact it's rarely 100 accurate is one thing i will say but i think we're gonna have to get used to a society to those things becoming more prevalent in our lives especially the workplace yeah at the end of the day if you think about it from a business perspective if you go to a business owner and said hey I've got some tools that can save you time and money and help you get more done in less time. What do you think? They're not, that's my elevator yeah. pitch. They're not going to turn around and say, no, thanks. Yeah. I completely agree with you. Martin, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much. I really appreciate yeah, no, it. Thanks a lot.